Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights here with Rich Klein. We're going to do an episode about 1998. Rich received some source materials from Mike Kramer, the president, CEO, founder of Pacific, and now defunct. Uh, long story there, but in 98 and throughout the years of their existence, they were doing some really interesting things. But thanks, sponsors, Tops, Panini, and Upper Deck. Those card companies are still around. Uh, Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Comcy.com, where you can find some of these products we're going to talk about, and Beckett Marketplace, where you can as well, with Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication. So welcome, Rich. We're going to talk about three different sets. Yeah. Thank you for providing this information from Mike that we could go through freshly today. We're just going to give our reactions to it. Any shock? Any big surprise? The sheer volume of cards specific. We always thought of them as the small card company. When you look at a product like 1998 Pacific and they produced the base cards of more than 15 million base cards. Well, granted, it's a set, so you can... It's only 50,000 50, sets. Yeah. Does that sound small or big? That sounds huge and small at the same time. Yeah. Because 50,000 sets may be more than the hobby could have handled from Pacific in 98. But they could have handled more than 10 times as many tops or well, upper deck, I would guess. More than 10. Still a big number. It's a huge number. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, there's costs in producing, but one thing people don't remember or may not know is Pacific owned the printing press. Right. When you own the printing press and you don't have to lease out the, the printing of the cards, it makes a huge difference. Well, it allowed them to do some creative things with kind of some in the middle of the run changes that they could do more easily than if you had to tell somebody that went through three different degrees of separation to change it from a red stamping to a green to a copper to a gold. So yeah. And it also allowed if you have an autograph product or a jersey product or a serial numbered product that's low, where you have an employee who can actually do the hand sort and put it in. Right. Yeah, this is nineteen ninety eight. So the sets that we were given some reference material for were the ninety eight the regular Pacific set, the Paramount set, and the Omega set. And I was surprised that the quantities among the three in terms of the total cards produced, I was prepared to see a bigger difference. I guess they really didn't have a flagship. If anything, looks like Paramount right, was. But their but flagship was Pacific. Was Pacific, and it's not the biggest, uh, the, the most produced. Which tells you they had a very steady audience for anything. They, they had produced. a Pacific fan club, perhaps. Right. And this predates pretty much game used and autographs on cards. So their creativity was in their inserts and their parallels and uh, a lot of serial numbering, too. And, and the, I would love to have seen numbering on as Pacific Online from 98. That product well, was... Well, we don't have that. I, I said yeah. I would have loved to have seen it because yeah. that was one that was really tough to get. Do I, we perceive that would be smaller? A bigger set, but a smaller quantity Maybe of cards produced. Maybe not because 800 cards was in the set. That was a huge set. Yeah, but no significant inserts. But maybe you didn't produce the inserts, but if you did 15 million cards of 800, that's 20,000 sets. That's a huge yeah. difference in the number of sets. Yeah, but by your eyeballing it, we don't think there are that many sets out there. We don't think that there are no. I mean, they had to decrease the number of sets. They probably did. And we think we see less of those commons than we do these others. Paramount, I see a lot. Omega, I see a lot. The regular Pacific. We, we sure do. When I was looking at the Omega information, was Pacific was sending to CVS. Yeah, as a direct account. I yes. mean, th there could be some drugstores that excel, treat, they had different outlets. They weren't just doing Walmarts and things like that and Myers. But CVS is a line item here. You were excited when you saw that, but it looks like maybe that was not an experiment that worked very well. It probably didn't, but I was excited because 
one of the issues we always dealt with at Beckett is how do you expand to the general audience? CVS is as much in Walmart and Target. There's more CVSs than Walmarts, maybe. When yeah. you talk about Walgreens and CVSs, yeah. they've got every street corner covered in the city, I think. Well, and in fact, you, they're catty-cornered many times. And if you think about it, nowadays, Tops has a base parallel brand. Walgreen, I think we call it Walgreen Exclusive Yellow at Compsy. Okay. So they're right. back in Walgreens. And so I'm excited because it's like, they were 20 years ahead of their time getting back to the drugstores. Okay, so the 60 cases went to CVSs, and they're more than way more than 60 CVSs, so they couldn't have each gotten a case. And in each of these three products, and I don't know that the other products went to CVS, but the I don't Omega think only, I don't, perhaps. I think only Omega. But said. all of them uh, are 20 box cases, and two of them are 36 packs per box. I guess the Omega is not; it's 24 packs per box. And then there's six, eight, ten cards per pack, which was what was going on in those days. Would that have been a dollar packs? Very well. And the other thing is that maybe it wasn't each store buying a case, but it was the corporation buying the case and then divvying up to each store a box, two boxes, depending on what the stores yeah. want. And the boxes, I'm sure, were even in those days, were sealed. Yes. But then if you bust them and sell packs, would they have sold packs? I think there was a lot of pack selling in those days. There was days. a ton of pack selling, yeah. Yeah. But then there's shrinkage with that. And, the, and then each one of these products had a one per insert which or parallel. They, they had some special card in each pack. And that was pretty guaranteed. Like you said, they had their own kind of sorting and inserting line. They managed, not third party, but managed themselves. I'm not shocked, but the fact that there are 13, 14, 15 million of these cards around, not that anybody's trying to corner the market, that just doesn't sound like a big number. And yet... We don't know what Tops put out or Donruss back in the day or Leaf or any of these. Or Fleer, which had to be way up there as well. What's interesting, because 98 is also the last year for Donruss Leaf playoff. Good they, point. Good they point. They, pinnacle, all the Pinnacle brands. All the Pinnacle brands, they go out of business in August of 98. So were any of these done after basically Pinnacle was no longer around because it became a big thing for Leaf rookies and stars? Somebody picked it up. Well, there could have been a race to the bottom in terms of Pinnacle was very aggressive in their distribution. Were you surprised looking at these numbers that the number of cases to the hobby was not that much different than the number of cases if you added up all these other retail outlets? Not really because Pacific was never really a... I want to say hobby staple, but I went to a lot of stores when I was doing show trips with a few exceptions. Most of my show trips were show and store, and you didn't see as much Pacific product in the hobby stores. Do you blame that on the distributors or on Pacific? I think I, th I blame is the wrong word. I think the responsibility comes to the dealers. I don't think the dealers thought they could sell, so they didn't order it. They didn't it. order it. So the distributors had it available but it wasn't a hot product. And you have heard, again, any company that goes out of business, there were remaindered Pacific things. Yes. I'm not positive that 98 was one of those, but there, there were some remainder sales of Pacific cases that didn't get sold, which is sad because, I, like I said, I think every pack had something interesting yes. in it. And uh, you look at some of these insert ratios. When I look at these inserts and they're one per case, or even more difficult than that, you're thinking, wow, that's really tough. But then from the, these uh, spreadsheets that we have, there's still hundreds of sets of these very tough creative inserts that are excellent design. And there's even parallels of some of them. And you knew Michael a lot better than I did. 
but he always struck me as a careful. This is very calculated. Yes, that's what this I'm saying. This is very formulaic. Yes. And I, I trust him and we're not privy to release these to the general public, but it's even noted, as I told you when I had that episode with Tanner Jones yeah. about executive proofs, that he actually has in here, Tanner, the number of non-numbered special inserts. And I don't know they were for executive proofs. They weren't XXX, but they were not numbered. And it was for the purpose maybe of replacement. They, they also had some mention in here of some replacement cards in case there were damage. But that was really interesting to me. But again, their own printing press, they can run the ones with the serial numbers, and then they can run a few more sheets that don't right. have the serial numbers. And it's a good Cut them up and set them aside. And it's a good idea to have some backup because you're right, stuff can get damaged in transit. Did you go to the Pacific headquarters a couple of times or one or two times? Yes, I did. Enough to go in there and see that they had this special room that was locked up where they kept the inserts in these little pigeonhole the, kind of the things. One, the trip I remember more was 92, and I don't think they... Not then. No, not then. No. This was later. I went there, and they had they had these inserts, and they and, but they, it wasn't the mother load. It was the replacements I'm, for if somebody said, I got a damaged one. I'm sure. I think I did see that. The last time I went there was when Dennis Purdy first began his vintage card magazine. He had a really cool vintage type show. He ran with some modern stuff. Dennis was really cool. Another guy ahead of his time with what he did with the vin. I almost wish he was doing it today. Maybe not the magazine, but he'd be online. Just in the Paramount set here, it's noted that the hobby packs had uh, an insert, a, a parallel. And we're thinking that's copper. And that the retail had one per pack of, of another color that would be of the regular set. And then Treat had its own. Treat was a company that was formed to repack and distribute cards and what was, was huge old? in the day. The old Anco or Anderson News yeah. offshoot. But those are tough to get now. I don't think they're that widely collected. As you like to say, you like the things that are shorter supply, shorter demand, maybe not the superstar player. But for example, let's just say in 98, there was still a Va Fernando Valenzuela's career, I think made it to 97. I pretty much guarantee you if there were a 98 Pacific parallel of any sort of Fernando Valenzuela. Well, the, somebody would want all of them. Somebody would want all of them. The pricing for that, when we're doing the price guides back in those days, the initial perception would be if it's a one per pack, it's a one per pack. But one per pack retail is different than one per pack hobby. And so now we have the numbers here to see that, yes, it's one per pack, but there were a lot more hobby packs. So there were a lot more treat packs. So there were a lot more retail packs. CVS did not have its own <laughs> thing. And the other thing I noticed, which again, I, I think Mike was a straight shooter, the inserts of the other designs, the, what is it, Road to Cooperstown yeah. or the, the glove cards they had, the face to face, just looking at some of them. They were pretty much across the board, uh, equally fair representation of pack odds across the different distribution channels. I think, which that, is not the way these other companies did it. And I, I think that's smart because not every town, especially by 98, had a hobby store anymore. In 91, 92, it seemed like every town in the world had a hobby store. We had 30,000 accounts, but there had to be maybe 50,000. Almost every other company. If you're faced with, here's a hobby box and here's a retail box, which one do you want? We're conditioned to say, of course I want the hobby box. It's got the better inserts. This is proving the pack odds are the same. And I'm a fan of that on this level because not every place has a hobby shop. Not everybody knows yeah. about the hobby. So you want your retail buyers to have a good experience. I remember doing an article for Sports Collectors Daily and I was comparing that in, I think, 2010 or 2011, I want to get those tops where you spun the wheel to get the vintage card. 
and that depending on the cost of the box or the cost of the pack from Walmart, sometimes you were better off buying retail if that was your primary purpose in getting, because you, because you could get some good cards out of those. So you might want to skip the chance for the relic card out of the box if the box got too expensive and stay with the 20 count box from Walmart that you're going to get two spins of the wheel from and maybe one of the vintage parallels, short prints. So sometimes you went for that. So there are times where retail was better than hobby. Do you remember mentioned here about a scholastic program? Scholastic, I think the magazine or whatever was yeah. distributed to kids in school. And they had 200,000 packs with inserts in them. I think they were trying to get something going that may have been part of their contractual obligation with Major League Baseball. Yes. But it's a good deal. A good deal for everybody. It's not a lot of cards. They're just packing them up and and passing them out for free. And maybe maybe some of the collectors or even listeners to this got their first start with a Scholastic pack that had uh, Pacific cards. It would be sure interesting to hear from any of the listeners. Hey, did you get your cards that way? Or did you remember getting any cards that way? Because it's also targeted to a very specific age group. And a lot of the people in the age group are the people coming back to the hobby in the last year or so. It's a million two out of this 13 or 15 million. So it's 10%. So it's 10%, which is marketing and promotion. Hopefully somebody got that. In these insert ratios, you have to take into account not shrinkage, but the non-collector, not my mom threw them away, but the person threw them away. It just wasn't important to them. If they were not a serious collector and they bought a retail box of cards even, they maybe picked out a few and kept them. And the other ones got lost. Just didn't make the next move. Just went in the in the dumpster. So some of these retail pack odds, they're true. But the number of sets extant now is probably a lot less than this. It's interesting. We think everything was saved. But I guess this is no, proving no. that not every- Even in 98, yeah. Would you say half, maybe 40, 50 percent? Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Mike. They put out great cards. And no problem, I think, with the artistic design. They were cutting edge in so many ways. No, we're so, big. We're both big fans yeah, of Pacific yeah. for a lot of what they did. If they were around today, they'd yeah. be a corporate sponsor of your podcast. I'm sure they would. Better note to end on. Thanks, Rich. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back again tomorrow with another episode. The man